Easter, Fairhill Church. Happy Easter. He is risen. He is risen. Amen. Uh, now those kids who are jumping back to Reach Church with Miss Laura over there, uh, you can head out now. And otherwise, uh, please join me in prayer. Let's pray. Father, on this most glorious of days, um, we remember your resurrection. And Father, we are humbled by the fact that you had to come and die. We are humbled by your great mercy and your grace. We are humbled by your love. And Father, as we look at the resurrection, we ask that you would give us great joy. Father, would you give us uh, a desire to love and to worship the one who would die and who would raise again on our behalf. You are the triumphant king. You are the glorious one. You are our savior. And Father, would that give us great joy as we look at Jesus Christ as our resurrected one. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right. So, uh, over these past few weeks, we have been talking about the crescendo to the empty tomb. The crescendo to the empty tomb. Basically talking about how all of Jesus' life was culminating, was picking up steam, and was moving towards his death, but even more towards his resurrection. That Jesus' life was, was looking towards that final point, that that was the climax of his life. It was the victory. It was the proclamation. That was the most triumphant thing. That was deliverance from sin. That was life itself. And we see how uh, throughout the scriptures, especially in Matthew, Jesus keeps his eyes on the cross. He keeps his eyes on the fact that the resurrection is where his true victory will come. That there is no other glory for him on this earth. He is here to humble himself and serve others. And his victory will come at the resurrection. So that's the culmination of Jesus' life. It was moving towards that high point. And now, if that is true then, our lives are moving towards that same high point. That that resurrection is not just this culmination of Jesus' life. It's actually the culmination of all of history. That the whole world is moving towards this place where death is defeated. Where sin no longer enslaves. Where there is hope. Jesus Christ in the resurrection proved that there is life eternal. That there can be a world where things do not decay, where things do not get destroyed, where suffering and sin does not have the final say. That is our hope. That is our hope. We can throw out other trivialized hopes. Things like, well, I just want to be, I want to be remembered in the hearts of my loved ones. I'm just going to be part of the circle of life. That these are these are weak hopes compared to the hope of the resurrection. That there would actually be life after death. That there would actually be a new world where Christ reigns and where sin and death are conquered. But, but today, we're going to focus on a certain aspect. All of these promises and all of these good things, they're only true if the resurrection actually happened. And it only has any benefit for you if you believe that it is true. If these are just uh, fanciful truths that, that give you some encouragement. Or if they're just uh, 
wishful thinking, then the resurrection is going to have no power. And the resurrection is, is not going to be the climax of life. The resurrection is, uh, is going to be a disappointment or it's just a lie. And so today I want to challenge us to think about do we really believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ? The story of Matthew puts that very clearly before us. And it asks the question, there's, there's two versions of the story here. There's two versions of the story. Which one are you going to believe? Was Jesus' body snatched away in the night? Or was Jesus our resurrected Lord? And so today we're going to be looking at the evidence for the resurrection. We're looking at this story in, in three different aspects. First, we're going to look at how unexpected this story is. How unexpected it is. And how contrary to what we would expect from it. All right? Then we're going to talk about how this message of the gospel, of the resurrection of Jesus, how it was unpopular. How it was opposed. How it was hated by the enemies of Jesus. And finally, we're going to talk about how this message had unstoppable force. How it it pushed through worldviews and doubts and, and kind of swept through uh, the world and became what it is today by the power of the resurrection. So let's turn to Matthew 27. Matthew 27 and walk through this passage. Matthew 27. We're going to start with verse 57. Verse 57. Matthew 27, verse 57. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud. He laid it in his own empty tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, sitting opposite the tomb. Now last week we saw the triumphal entry. The triumphal entry. This was the victorious Jesus. And the victorious Jesus was met with the adoration of the crowds. With people cheering and praising Jesus as the Messiah and as the King. Taking off their cloaks, throwing them at Jesus' feet. Singing that he was the Messiah, that he would be their King. Well now all the fanfare has died down. The palm branches are dead. People have picked their cloaks back up. The songs have stopped. And here is the dead king. And suddenly the crowds are, are long gone. And there are two people left, the two Marys. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of, who was it, James and Joseph. That has all been dwindled down to, to two women who are left. Two women whose faith is in the fact that Jesus Christ said he would resurrect from the dead. And they are attending to him. They are waiting for that to happen. But that is, that is all that is left. 
this faithful remnant of two women. And so they're, they're looking to the fact that Jesus said he would raise from the dead and that was their hope. But the problem is that the enemies of Jesus also remember those words. And so let's continue on in the passage, verse 62. The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how the imposter said, while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead. And the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the empty tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. So we see two opposing forces here. There's, there's these two women, and there's this contingency of powerful men, the enemies of Jesus Christ. <laughs> he can't get out, Miles. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> and these men, these men want to make sure that, that no fraud happens. Because they thought that Jesus was a fraud from the very beginning. That he pretended to be the king, he pretended to be the Messiah. And he was pretending the whole time. That he was deceiving the people. And they know that if Jesus resurrects from the dead, according to their their premises, if, if the disciples pull off this fraud, that would be devastating. Because Jesus made some heavy claims. He claimed to be king. He claimed to be Messiah. He claimed to be God. And anyone can go around claiming to be God, but there needs to be proof. There has to be proof. And this is the greatest test that Jesus could have ever devised. How do you know that someone is God? Well, they, they're killed and they raise again from the dead. That that would demand people's obedience. That would demand people's worship. People would have no choice but to receive this man as their king. As God himself to demand their worship. And these chief priests, they don't want to see that happen. Partially because they are in control now, but also because that would mean the deception of the people in their eyes. They cannot handle it. And they want to make sure that this deception does not get through. And they know how that everyone could be fooled. Maybe if they steal away the body in the night, then they could, the disciples could lie and say that Jesus was in fact resurrected and pull off this fraud. So to make sure that doesn't happen, they send a guard. They send uh, men to protect the tomb and they seal it so that no one can get in or out. All right, so this is, this is kind of the battleground. There are two stories going on here. There is the resurrection story and there is the lie. And we have to face the facts that we have to choose one. You have to choose one. And which one are you going to believe? Which one you choose is going to have sweeping and profound implications for the rest of your life. So let's look at this. First of all, we're going to look at just how unlikely a story 
is presented in Matthew. So unlikely a story that actually it's a proof of its, of its veracity. That it's so unlikely the disciples never would have invented it, never would have come up with it. It's too unlikely a story. Look at verse 20. Uh, 28, excuse me. Now after the Sabbath, <laughs> chapter 28, verse 1. Excuse me once again. Now after the Sabbath, towards the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. So an angel of the Lord, a messenger, comes and rolls back the stone. He rolls back the stone that was sealed. He cripples these guards and these soldiers. Everyone is left in fear. And what does he say? Verse 5. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who is crucified. He is not here, for he has risen. As he said, Come, see the place where he lay. Now, why did the angel come? Why did the angel come? I think we think that the angel came just so that he could, he could tell the women this message. Oh, like, your savior, your savior is raised. Uh, go, and tell, go and tell your friends. That's actually not what the angel came to do. Look carefully. He came to give them evidence of the resurrection. The angel pulls back the, the stone, not so that Jesus can get out. It's not so that Jesus can get out. It's so that these women can get in. So that they can look in the tomb and see that it is empty. These are the two women that were there to see that stone rolled over the, the tomb in the first place. Who had seen the body dead and decaying. And here the angel is inviting these same women to see Jesus is not here anymore. He is resurrected. Now I hope that isn't terribly unlikely to you. But I think if you've been around the church for a while, maybe that is unexpected and unlikely. That we would expect that the angel just come and proclaim something and the women are supposed to believe it on blind faith. Blind faith. But no, that's not what the angel comes to do. The angel comes to show them evidence of the resurrection. The proof of the resurrection. And that's where the Christian faith is not just something that is built upon uh, our experiences or our emotions. No, it's built around the true evidence of what Jesus Christ has done. And when the angel comes to proclaim the, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, he shows them the evidence. And that's where I would challenge us as Christians, first of all, and as skeptics, to look at the evidence. I'll start with the Christians. If, if we have no reason for our faith, our faith is going to be weak. Our faith is going to rest upon emotions and go up and down. No, we need, to, we need to know that we believe because of what has been testified. 
what has been proven. That isn't a lack of faith. That is believing what has been revealed to us. And that will solidify your faith. That will give you hope. And for skeptics who aren't sure about all this, look into the evidence. Look into the evidence. Don't just keep your head in the sand and, and never investigate. There are reasons to believe that if God is the creator of the universe, there are going to be fingerprints. He is going to leave his mark. It's probably not the evidence that we want. We, don't, we want something kind of solid, airtight. But no, he does leave his fingerprints. And you can look for that evidence. Sometimes me and, me and Casey, my wife, when we get overwhelmed with all this stuff, we say, yeah, remind, remind me why we believe this again. And there's, there's faith in that. Like, wait, why do we believe in God? And you have to like look, go through it and like, okay, yeah, yeah, okay. That, that makes sense. And you can do that. And this angel, he's, he's inviting these women to do that. So I would encourage us. Know why we believe in the God that we do. And look into the evidence. And that's hopefully our, our goal today. All right, so he shows these women the proof and then the angel sends them out as witnesses. That they become the proof themselves going forth and being proof to others. Look at verse 7. Then go quickly, tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead and behold... He is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up, took hold of his feet, and worshipped him. Now there's two elements that you need for Jesus to be resurrected. One is the tomb needs to be empty. If the tomb isn't empty, then you go around preaching Jesus, Jesus resurrected and they pull out the body and say, no, he's not. The, the tomb has to be empty, but that's not enough. They also have to see Jesus Christ. They have to see him alive. And these two women, they see him alive. He is alive and well. And we're talking about how, how this is an unexpected story. This is an unexpected story because no one would ever have chosen the first witnesses of Jesus Christ to be two women. They wouldn't be two women because women had such low status in this society, uh, it wouldn't have gained them any traction. That women actually couldn't testify in court. It didn't have any legal grounds. And so if you committed a crime and only women saw it, you're not going to prison. It's like, it's like no one saw you. That's, that's the status of, of women in this culture. And yet, who are the first eyewitnesses of Jesus? It is two women. And we recognize that that actually makes sense in Jesus' kingdom. That who would receive this great honor of being the first to see Jesus, it would be these lowly women who stuck with Jesus to the very end. Last week, or uh, two, two, weeks, two weeks ago, we talked about how uh, these two men want to be 
at Jesus' right hand and left hand. That they want the glory of being with Jesus. Well, these women, they, they actually did it. They stuck it out. They were there until the very end. They were faithful. And it's those women who, in Jesus' kingdom, are chosen to have this great honor, even though the world would reject them. Even though the world would, would not receive their testimony, they receive this honor. And that's where we see that if the disciples were to be coming up with a tale for who first saw, the, saw Jesus Christ resurrected, it would not be these women. They gain nothing by that. That would only happen, would only be told in the story if it were true. That they had no other option. But those are actually the people who saw him first. It is unexpected that they would be the first to see. And ironically then, that's, that's kind of further proof that this is not just a made-up story. All right, next up, we have another unlikely situation having to do with this story. Uh, look at verse 10. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. So Jesus tells these women to go and get the disciples. Now, why is that unexpected? The question is, why weren't the disciples there? Why weren't they at the tomb? Why weren't they waiting for Jesus to be resurrected? It's because they were back in the upper room, mourning and weeping, faithless. That these, these triumphal leaders who would take the role of the church, uh, they didn't have faith. They were weak men. And, and who outstrips their faith but these two women, these two Marys? And that's where throughout the Gospels we see that if you were inventing, if you were a disciple inventing the story of how Jesus was resurrected, uh, this is a very unflattering picture for you to paint of yourselves. And we think of, uh, we think of when we tell, we're trying to tell the truth of a story, and you hear someone describing, and they're, they're describing how like, oh, yeah, I just like kind of made a mistake, and this person read me wrong, and I, I didn't say anything to start the argument, and we're, we're kind of like, we're kind of skeptical. But when they admit, like, actually, like, I called them this, and, and then I got really angry, and then I brought up this thing that I probably shouldn't have said, which story seems more likely? Which sounds like the real story? It's usually the unflattering one that includes lots of sin and lots of screw-ups. That is the story of the beginning of the Christian faith with these leaders who are, who are doing a miserable job leading the church. And when these women even come to them, uh, some of them don't believe them. They just write it off as uh, the emotions of mourning women. A few of them... Uh, aren't willing to receive the testimony. They have to see for themselves. They can't just uh, hear what they have been told. This is an unexpected start to the Christian faith. It wouldn't be something you would invent. 
And therefore, ironically enough, it, it points to the fact that it is true. That this is what happened and they couldn't get around it. It was just the story and they had to take it. Alright, so this is an unlikely story. But it's also an unpopular story. So there are enemies to this story. People didn't like it. Look at verse 11. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. When they had assembled with the elders and tanked council, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now, first thing we want to see is, uh, no one ever argued that the tomb wasn't empty. The tomb was empty. The question is, how did it get empty? And we see two stories here. One is that Jesus was resurrected. The other was that the body was snatched away. Uh, those, are the, those are the two options, essentially. And you have to decide, which is, which is the true story? Which one has the evidence? And I recognize that if you're reading this as a skeptic, this is one side of the story. You're getting the, the Christian account of it. And so we want to understand, how likely is it that this is how it went down? And one of the arguments against the likelihood of it is that, well, why would these men, uh, why would they be so blind to the truth? Why would they deny what is right there before, before them? How could they see the fact that Jesus is resurrected and then deny it? Um, I think that's actually kind of a, a naive idea that we have about belief in the truth. That there is incentive to believe or not to believe. And for these chief priests, they had a lot of incentive not to believe. First of all, it would mean the lack of power. That if Jesus is resurrected... Uh, they have no religious power. They do not get to be the, the greatest of the religious leaders. No, Jesus gets to have that role. Jesus gets to be king. Jesus gets to be Lord. Jesus gets to be priest. Jesus gets to be king. No ifs, ands, or buts. They lose all of their glory and triumph if Jesus is resurrected. And even more, they're wrong. They have to admit that they are wrong. Now, have you ever gotten in an argument with someone and realized halfway through that you were wrong? And, and you, like, you, you realize it in the back of your head and you realize, like, I'm going to lose this argument. I, I, I picked the wrong side. And have you ever not given up anyway? You realize halfway through, I'm, I'm going to lose, but I'm, I'm going to go down in, in flames. I'm going to go down in glory and just deny it until the very end. Yeah, we do that. Most arguments we do that. That we see our sin and we see that we're wrong and we can't accept it. Now imagine that multiplied to these Pharisees and, and chief priests who had condemned Jesus from the very beginning. That their error had cosmic sweeping eternal consequences. 
This is a lot for them to admit that they were wrong. And for the sake of their own pride, they would rather be right than repent, than admit it. And they would have to change their lives as a result. Everything would have to change. They would have to worship this one that they used to hate. And that's where we have to see that belief is, is not just this neutral thing that you're just analyzing the facts. No, you have a stake in it. Everyone is biased in some, some direction. Because if Jesus is resurrected, you owe him your life. There's only life in him. He gets to be king. He gets to rule. And you don't get to. And for many, that's, that's too high a price to be paid. And so you, you deny it even if you see the evidence. So I'd ask you, are, are you like the chief priest? Do you not believe because, not because you, you haven't seen the evidence, just because you don't want to? But maybe you're not the chief priest. Maybe you're the soldier. The soldiers, they're, they're not the enemies of Jesus. They don't hate Jesus. They just don't care. That this is like a big ordeal between a bunch of religious factions. And what do they want? They just want their paycheck. They, just, they don't want to get in trouble. They don't want to deal with the hassle of all this stuff. And they end up being paid off by the enemy. And that's where I think a lot of more people are. They're not the enemies of Jesus. They just, they just don't care. And maybe you don't care. But the thing is, these soldiers, they, they should have cared. That it had sweeping implications for their whole lives. That this was their eternal life and death. And yet, they were willing to be kind of pawns of the enemy. To be paid off. Like, just don't answer any questions. Just... Don't think about it too much. Just, just go along with the flow. And I would say that that is what the enemies of Jesus would have you do. Go along with the flow. Do life as you're supposed to do it. Don't ask questions. Just obey. I hope that that is not the Christian faith for you, but I hope that you're not trapped in a world that looks like that. That the world is telling you just, just accept what it is. We're right. Maybe you are being deceived. And so I'd ask you, what are your incentives for believing or not believing? For Christians, I would challenge you that oftentimes we only believe the resurrection to the extent that we can handle it. That the more we believe the resurrection, the more we owe our lives to Christ. The more we have to make our lives all about him. The more he can demand from us. And so even Christians believe it uh, 75%, 60%. Because the more we believe it, the more it takes from us. But maybe there is no resurrection to believe. Maybe there isn't. But that's where I think it, it takes us in this next passage to, I think that the strongest evidence for the fact that this is a true story. And it brings us to the fact that this message of the resurrection, it was powerful. It was unstoppable. 
And it actually forced its way through unbelievable worldviews, unbelievable beliefs, the most unlikely of circumstances, and was adopted and spread and believed. So let's look at uh, verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you to the end of the age. Now this testimony is in the, the message of the resurrection is first of all, unstoppable. Because there are so many people that see Jesus. That these two women are the first to see him. But that's not it. Next it's the, the 11. And Jesus actually, he, Luke, Acts Luke tells us that Jesus was on earth for 40 days. 40 days of appearances. Uh, Paul tells us there's a time where 500 people saw him at once. 500 people. And he tells them that, uh, saying at the same time, you know, some of them are dead. Some of, those, some of those witnesses are dead. But most of them are still alive. And if you don't believe it, go ask them. Go ask them. This isn't just so kind of like, oh, it's uh, just, just believe it. No, he says... Go test it. And as he said that, if people went to go ask, if, those, if they didn't have those witnesses, then it would have been clear pretty easily. But no, people had seen Jesus and they testified to it. And I think that's where we think that, well, maybe these people are just naive. Maybe they're just... Uh, Old Testament people who believe in this kind of goofy stuff like resurrections and they'll just believe whatever they're told. That's not the picture we get in the scriptures. That even here in the, the disciples themselves, some saw him and worshipped him and some doubted. There was doubt. People didn't just naturally believe in, in resurrections any more than we do. But it was the overwhelming witness. It was the evidence that broke through to them. That they could not deny it. That it, between the story of Jesus resurrected and someone snatched away the body, they were overwhelmed by the weight of evidence that Jesus in fact had resurrected. That people had seen him. And the thing is that if we, if we throw out the actual resurrection, you have to explain a lot of things. Like, why would a bunch of Jewish, monotheistic people all of a sudden start worshiping this man? Thousands and thousands of Jewish people committing heresy and blasphemy. All at the same time. Maybe, maybe they actually saw the resurrection and that explains it. Otherwise, it doesn't make a lot of sense. There's, there's freight and there's power here. And if you don't believe in the resurrection, you have to explain why that power was there in the first place. Why did people believe? 
And finally, I think that the weight of evidence is the fact that when you look at the disciples' lives, when you look at the disciples' lives, did they live like people who knew that there was a dead Jesus in their closet? Did they live like that? Did they live like people who were, who were wavering or timid, afraid to be found out, or always doubting the fact that, well, if I die, uh, I, I'll, I just made it up. I lied. No, they didn't live like that. They lived like that before the resurrection. Before the resurrection, they were, they were wimps. But after the resurrection, these were powerful men. And all but one of these men were killed for their faith. That between denying Christ and going to the grave, they chose the grave. That tells me that they had seen the resurrected Jesus. That they knew there was life beyond. That they knew that their glory was not in this world. That they knew they'd be resurrected with Jesus himself. And so they powerfully proclaimed his word. They proclaimed the fact that they had seen the resurrected one and that there was life in him. So what do we do with this? What do we do with this? If, you've, if you haven't decided if Jesus is resurrected or not, uh, you, you can't keep your head in the sand. You have to decide. And if Jesus resurrected, then there is life only in him. And he deserves all worship. He is the true king. He is God. And even more than that, he, he paid for our sins. He rescued us out of death. He said that we would be perfect before God by his blood, and he did it. That those things are true. So I'd ask you, do you believe it? Do you believe in the resurrection? And if you do believe, if you do believe, you have a song to sing. You have a song to sing. We talk about the crescendo. You need to join in the crescendo. That all of life was culminating towards the resurrection and your life needs to culminate towards the resurrection. Your resurrection with Christ. Your song needs to change. It can't be the minor key song anymore. It needs to be the major key song of worship and praise and joy. That Jesus Christ is alive and you are alive in him. That you would joyfully give him all of your obedience, all of his worship, all of the glory because of what he has done. He has died for you and he's resurrected that you might have life. So think about your motives. Think about the evidence. And think about Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, as we look at, at the evidence, we give you the glory. We give you glory for having resurrected. That there is power and uh, and glory in your name. That you went to the cross as a king and you were resurrected as a greater king. 
the victorious king, the king who conquered sin and death. Father, that is joyous news. For those of, you, uh, of us who believe that, I ask that he would send us out into the world proclaiming that. That we would proclaim that even in the face of death. That we would proclaim that knowing that that can never be taken from us. That there is nothing in this world that we need to cling to, but we have life and we have glory and we have honor. We have the climax in the life to come. And Father, for those who are skeptical, I ask that you would reveal their hearts to them. And Father, would you guide them into the truth. We pray this all for your glory, that your mercy and your grace may be proclaimed, that you love the sinner, and you're kind and gracious to them in Jesus Christ. Thank you, Father, for we are sinners and we need you. We pray in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.